0: This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets.
1: Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast brought to you by KTM. KTM has a brand new limited edition Beast, the 2023 KTM Super Duke Or. For petrol heads that want a unique way to tackle the track, Check out ktm.com for the latest news on that. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, as usual, it's myself, Steve English, and I'm joined by the top team of Moto GP experts. We've got David at the editor of MotoMatters.com, Adam Wheeler from On Track Off Road, and we've got Moto 2 and Moto 3 commentator Neil Morrison. And we've got a lot to pick through from that opening round in Portimao. This was obviously the first round where we were able to see the new sprint race format. We were also able to see Peko Bagnaya back up. His pre-season credentials as the clear title favorite. He did the double this weekend. We saw in the Moto2 class, Pedro Acosta was able to claim the opening race of the season. And then in, in Moto3, we saw Danny Halgado claim his first Grand Prix victory. So lots to pick through from Portimao. Adam, I'm going to come to you first. Sum up the opening races of the year in just one sentence.
0: One sentence. Uh, if the aim was to get people talking about MotoGP, then mission accomplished. Uh,
1: it's very true. There was a lot of people taking a lot of interest in it this weekend. David, what about you?
2: Uh, I The first race of the season is always exceedingly stressful.
1: It is actually very stressful, especially whenever you go back to Pit Lane for the first time after all the tests and suddenly you realise that there's a lot of happening down there.
2: Yeah, genuinely, genuinely, I was, well, I went into Pit Lane and I've been in Pit Lane for most of the, you know, both of the tests and it's a very sedate uh, sort of pace, everyone is wandering around uh, walking in and out and all the rest of it and the bikes come in and the uh, the mechanics sort of slowly back them back into the, uh, to the garages and all the rest of it and I'd forgotten that uh, race weekend, they're all going at about 12 million miles an hour. So you really have to sort of like jump out of the way of people. So yeah, I spent, especially FP1 or, hang on, wait a minute, it's P1 now, isn't it? Yeah. So especially the first practice, I was uh, uh, I was definitely realised I needed to step up my game.
1: Working at a sedate pace, that brings us nicely to Neil Morris. <laughs> Neil, sum up the opening race weekend of the season.
3: Well, my um, summing up is, is pretty short, Steve. It's uh, pretty full on. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> just pretty full on. On the track uh the racing was uh, intense like um oh possibly we've never seen before. Uh, The fact that we had two races on two days is a new thing. It was pretty full on for for us watching, for us trying to figure out the schedule, as David said, and for us trying to remember uh, the change of names, P1, not FP1. Um, I think I slipped over that at least uh, three or four times over the, the live commentary. So yeah, intense weekend for those on track and I think for everyone watching as well.
0: Neil, well, firstly he said a sentence, not a paragraph, And then, secondly, I didn't realize you had a thing for Lorenzo. And so, shame about his injury, and he had to pull out of the Motor 3 (laughs) race.
3: Terrible. Terrible. Terrible.
0: uh, Sorry, dad joke.
2: Should we? Um, oh, because I mean, Steve said we, we did the double. Now, doing the double is what you used to do in superbikes when there are only two races. Uh, what do they call it in uh, in in MXGP? Now that we've got two races in in MotoGP, they call it uh, winning the mo winning both motos or something. What a, what do we, how are we going to phrase this? A one one, a one one, went one. Yeah. one one. Yeah, number one went one one. And I think he was uh, slightly irritated that he didn't go one one um, one 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 in the, in the poll and get poll as well.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, we let David go number one for uh, – some. or sorry, we let Adam go number one for summing up the weekend. We came to Neil last – for his summation and i have to say neil as a man that refuses to use punctuation in anything i write i thought that was only one sentence so absolutely no need to worry about that but um when you look at the weekend what was your moment of the weekend uh,
3: obviously one of the one of the big talking points of the weekend was uh, <coughs> mark marquez um and my um my moment of the weekend was The start of his Saturday. I think we saw the best and kind of the worst of Mark uh, in Portimao and uh, we're going to come on to the worst soon after this but I thought um, his pole position on Saturday morning, was not just uh, really impressive and really dramatic to watch, but it was also really funny because all year, all preseason, we had built up Ducati, and rightly so because they've been so brilliant, so dominant, and uh, Marquez showed that, uh, in qualifying at least, uh, they were partly fallible because you just had to tuck in behind one of the factory riders and absolutely ride the wheels off your own bike, and uh, you could overcome it. And um, considering we were all predicting how... um, how bad a spot Honda are in. There was like a, it was quite ironic just seeing Mark do what he did. Um, and uh, completely shamelessly so. So um, yeah, I think his uh, pole position that was uh, my moment of the weekend.
1: Yeah, I think for me as well, Neil, I thought it was one of the most unbelievable things we've seen from an unbelievable career for Mark. And like you said, it did kind of lead us into the high point of Mark's weekend. And then we had the low points later on. It was actually something that Sean Elkins mentioned to us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod, when he said, can you please talk about the Jekyll and Hyde of Mark Marquez this weekend but David you looked like you were in a hurry to come in when Neil said it was quite funny to see Ducati not get ball position but what was your moment of the weekend?
2: My moment of the weekend were the last couple of laps of um, uh, Pecca Bignaya's uh, race the, 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 the race on Sunday and um, I mean, he was very strong in the sprint race and he was very strong in the uh, full race. Uh, but for a long, a lot of the, of the full race, it really looked like Maverick Vinales could stay with him. But just the last, what, two, three laps, Peco, just absolutely put the hammer down, uh, pulled away. I think he was doing sort of, it was about half a second, maybe a bit more, uh, a lap faster in those three or two or three laps. And he just absolutely stamped his authority on uh, on the race. He was uh, It was a very, very impressive win. And um, yeah, I mean, Pecco just looked fantastic all weekend. He looked really, really focused and calm. Uh, I mean, we said, like, the the, the, the sprint race or the, the, the new format is really intense and really, really sort of everyone was really hyped up. Everyone except for Peko, he was just, you know, he was, he was incredibly zen. I have to say, I felt
1: sorry for the commentators during
2: the course of the sprint race because
1: I found that, uh, obviously, everyone is going to call it a Grand Prix. They're going to call it a MotoGP race. They're going to call it whatever they want. I was calling it a Super Bowl race in my head. <laughs> and the commentators were trying their best to correct themselves. This isn't a Grand Prix. This is the the Tissot Sprint Race. We've got to get it out. But um, I thought that uh, yeah, like you said, David, for the end of that race, what we saw from Pecco was uh, really impressive on Sunday. Just to be able to to maintain that and manage the race was very good.
3: Yeah. And I think one of the big things this weekend was uh, staying out of trouble. That in itself was a bit of an art form. And uh, the fact that Peko managed to narrowly avoid a couple of, uh, a couple of big moments, you could say it was lucky, but it was also he was able to position himself expertly in the battles um, so that he was never really truly in the thick of the fight. And anytime he was, he moved pretty much immediately to get back towards the front. Um, and I thought, you know, you look at uh, when Rossi was operating at top level and even Marquez as well they kind of had a similar thing where you thought wow they were they were so lucky that they avoided that incident just behind but um, it was the fact that they were kind of up front and maybe dictating pace that was causing the others to get a bit twitchy so um, yeah he, he he did really well uh, winning the races but he also did a magnificent job of staying out of trouble.
0: Just quickly on that, I would say for people who are worried that this is going to be a a Pekka Bagnaya Championship write off, then the competitiveness of Marvin Vinales and also. Uh, Jorge Martin um, was pretty, pretty encouraging. You know, I don't think Pecco is going to be running away with this thing. And bear in mind that Portimao was also uh, what the fifth day of activity at that particular circuit. So there was a lot of parity when it comes to setups, obviously knowledge, everything else. Uh, but then it also is quite worrying that in the press conference, Peco said on the latest sort of configuration of the Desmos Dici, he loves the extra stability he's got. Um, you know, this is the best version of the bike he's had yet. So that is a little concerning.
1: Yeah, it's probably a little bit concerning as well that in the Grand Prix on Sunday, we still ended up with, well, 4G caddies inside the top five. Obviously, there was a lot of different circumstances during the course of that race, but uh, it was one of those situations where once again, we saw from Paco how good he was at the front. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened with his teammate Bastianini if he hadn't have been taken out in the sprint race, what would have happened to him on the Sunday as well. So I think it is one of those things we're very early in the season to be able to pick our form guide and, and see what way it's going to go. But uh, there was some ominous signs once again in Portimao. But Adam, for you, what was your moment of the weekend?
0: Well, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, Steve. There's two big things we have to talk about in the show. The sprint um and also the way MotoGP changed you know the the new kind of shape or the face of of the championship and the marquez incident and um you know i'm sure we can dissect a little bit what happened i think it was on the third lap or the second lap i can't even remember now going into turn three the third lap so you know it was a major thing it's had repercussions uh it's created a lot of discussion uh i don't know do we want to talk about it now should we talk about the sprints first
1: I think it's the big talking point. Let's let's dive straight into, as we heard from Sean Elkins, the Jekyll and Hyde of Mark Marquez. I would like to say one, one, one thing as well. Like I found it really interesting that uh, one of the points that uh, Fabio Quartararo made at the end of the weekend was if we started in La Salle, it probably would have been a bit different. It's a wider track. It's a little bit different to Portimao. Portimao, it's, it's worth mentioning, isn't a narrow track. It's a narrow line, especially at the start of the lap. Through turns one, two, three. It is literally one line. And when you look at the helicopter shots, and if anyone has the video passed, go back and look at the uh, races with the different camera angles because it's always really interesting to see what happens from on boards or in particular, the helicopter at the start of races. The Super pole uh, the Super Bowl race, I did it right at the outset. The sprint race was, um, was interesting because there was a moment on the first lap, I, I think it was where Oliveira might have been bundled past by someone else. And from the outboard shot. It looked like he was properly bundled past. But when you look at the helicopter, he's a little bit wide. And there's so little margin for error into turn three. And this isn't to excuse Mark. Mark was clearly completely at fault. He was out of control. But into that corner, we see it time and again. And obviously, in superbikes, we have a lot of experience in Portimao. We've been going there for a long time. But turn three is such a pinch point, because if you break in three metres too late... You have no chance of being able to maintain your line through that section of corners. Obviously, Mark braked in too deep, he locked the front, and then tried to take avoid action. But it, there, there is such a a tight rope that you walk through that section of track.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's also from the TV. It's really hard to appreciate just how tight it is. Um, you, you know, you've you've got your, you've got turn one, which is you're coming from a high speed and uh, and it's pretty much or it's not quite a right angle but it's almost a right angle and then you've got that fast kink of number or, or well a fast kink you've got a kink of, of number two but then uh, turn three is really almost a hairpin and once you get out of the hairpin you have to, to flick the left uh, the, the the bike left again to go up the hill so it, it really is um, a very demanding corner and a demanding line um, Mark said during the crash that Maybe it was because of his hard. He was using the hard front, and he didn't really give it enough time uh, to get up to temperature before he was to before he brake so hard. Wilco Zielenberg sort of uh, sort of said, you know, you don't, there's no need to do that in the first couple of laps. You've got to let your temperature come up, and you got to, you know, you don't need to sort of break towards people all the time. Uh, you could just break at the same time as everyone, and then sort of, you know, once you're once everything is really is really ready, then you can try to attack. But, um, yeah, it, 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 it was um, It was good. Someone said, uh, it's funny how these incidents always seem to involve Mark Marcus. Um, uh, it, on the one hand, that's why we love him. He's an incredibly exciting racer to watch because he will do things with the bike that um, other riders just can't do. Um, it's just that sometimes when he does those things, uh, he can't do them either, it turns out.
0: My take is that, i think he's been vilified he's carrying a lot of the not the blame but some of the emotion that people have towards the sprint format and how people have perceived MotoGP to be much more hazardous and perilous or reckless or whatever but the fact that i think you know mark almost crashed in the same sort of section the previous lap gave the impression that he was out of control uh after the race Quite some time afterwards, uh, he gave a press conference um, and I asked him about his hand. I said, do you think you're going to be out of Argentina? Because the the cast he was wearing um, on his right arm was quite elaborate. And uh, he was emotional. Um, You know, he felt extreme. he was very contrite about the accident. He said he deserved a long lap penalty. He said that in the the safety commission, the riders have been informed of like a sliding scale of punishments. A long lap penalty would be like the first yellow card. The second one would be, I believe, um, a a ride through. Uh, No, sorry, a pit lane start. The third one would be a ride through penalty. And then the fourth one would be a one race ban. So Mark's kind of on the first strike of that, if you like. And I think, you know, it's, of course, it's desperately unfair on Miguel Oliveira. Um, Marquez, of course, has previous history with these kind of incidents. So he has a little bit of a reputation for some recklessness. Of course, he's compensating for the Honda and the lack of um, competitiveness they currently have. There's all sorts of mitigating factors. And when he came out of the medical center in the paddock in Portimao, there must have been a gathering of 50 to 60 Portuguese fans and just a roll of boo and jeering and and the whole emotion directed towards him. I could see why he was, you know, emotionally affected by as well as physically by the whole thing. I think it's incredibly unfair to, you know, throw knives at him because like Dave said, which I completely agree with. He's the most mo- remarkable motorcycle racer I've ever seen. Of course, he has his faults, but again, that's why we love him. And if you suddenly cast him out of MotoGP or he has an attack of um, emotion or, or, or consciousness, like we saw in the all in documentary where he was questioning whether he really needs to be there, then it's it's going to be a disaster, I think, for the for, the, for Grand Prix. Um, I understand there's a lot of emotion, particularly with the RNF Aprilia team. Miguel Oliveira confirmed not to be riding in Argentina, but uh, I think we just need to you know get over this first 24 or 48 hour period of thinking that he's the devil incarnate
2: yeah but i mean uh, it's it's not exactly the first time that he's turned out to be the devil incarnate i mean it, you, i'm going to mention sapang 2015 again just for uh shits oh. and giggles but um oh, yeah. Dave, jesus <laughs> but yeah i mean he he was um there was always this this argument about them. i remember even when he was in moto 2 you saw on social media and motorcycle forums that um uh he was only uh, he was only doing so well because he because his team were cheating and uh it, they were it was being favored and also being put straight into the repsol honda team so um uh, he really is he really is a might one but i mean he's exactly what the sport needs uh, um because you want polarizing characters you want uh, someone that you're either going to be a fan of or you're going to be absolutely hate and want to lose um you know you, you can't have sort of bland mcdonald's figures do you know what i mean you don't want sort of you know just to, like uh, the everyman races they're, they're a lot less entertaining they're a lot less attractive um and i mean it must be Difficult for Mark to be the target of so much hate, um, and maybe also difficult to be the target of so much uh, adoration. But he probably comforts himself by lying on a bed of million um, uh, uh, of his uh, of his uh, of, of hundreds uh, hundred euro notes.
3: But I don't think that's the that's the argument here. I mean, sure, you could say maybe the reaction has been slightly over the top from um, from from certain fans, um, but. You know, he was definitely. I think he was definitely in the wrong here. We have to remind ourselves that this is uh, an eight-time world champion, thirty-year-old uh, rider, a guy that's been racing um, on the world stage since uh, two thousand and eight, I think, um, full time. Um, I think he's the second most experienced rider on the MotoGP grid. Um, and this was a this was kind of a rookie era. This was a kind of thing you would expect to see from um, Augusto Fernández or, or, or someone who is completely new to the MotoGP category. Um, You know, Marquez has spoken all winter of um, the Honda's deficits and weaknesses. And, um, you know, I think he should have been a bit more aware um, of of those in this kind of situation. Um, As Dave said, it's not his first rodeo or it's not the first time he's been in this kind of situation. It wasn't even the first uh, time at turn three that he, when he when he took out Oliveira that um, he nearly came across cropper there. I mean, he was right on the ragged edge on the first lap. You have to say he was pretty lucky on that occasion that he didn't wipe out Jorge Martino, didn't, you know, skittle him by losing the front. Um, and you just think for a guy that, like, at that stage of the race, by was leading, um, you know, I'm not saying that he needed to, 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 to kind of roll off, but um, it was clear that he didn't have the speed for the podium in the full-length race, um, and you just think, was there was the need to be kind of riding like that at that particular point? Um, so yeah, I think it was. Um, it definitely wasn't his finest moment, and um, you know maybe it's a consequence of Mark being unwilling to accept the kind of situation that that he finds himself in. Um, you know, he, he can't accept uh, riding around in a kind of safe fifth or sixth position.
0: I agree with that, Neil. I think there's a a contradiction in Mark because he'll sit in the press conference on a Saturday after the sprint, having finished in third, saying that his ultimate ambition had been top five. So, I mean, they were as pleased as Punch and you saw the reaction inside the HRC box when he took pole position. I mean it turns out that in Bastinini's shoulders were strong enough to carry Mark you know, carry Mark Marquez for a toe but not to get punted off in in the first moments of the sprint unfortunately. But you know, like I said to Dave and and we talked on the the Patreon note shows um if there's one rider that you don't want to hit out of a front running position at his home <laughs> Grand Prix then it's Miguel <laughs> Oliveira in front of 60,000 fans. Um you know, good attendance by the way for the Grand Prix. But uh yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree, but it is strange. I mean, if it had been Ralph Fernandez who would hit out Miguel Oliveira, it's, it's just, I find it hard to believe there'll be the same amount of vitriol or judgment on on social media or wherever else we've seen all these memes and, and comments. Um, I think Mark just opens himself up for judgment. Uh, maybe because he is so good, or because he has had so many previous run ins, or he was uh, Valentino Rossi's last nemesis. So who knows?
1: Yeah, I have to say, if it was Fernandez taking out Miguel, it probably would have been a very different reaction from his team manager as well. But um, I think for what Neil was saying about uh, Marquez being unwilling to accept that he can't win, it's that he's unable to accept it. And that's what makes Mark so special. That's why Saturday was the best thing we've seen in so long in a, in a qualifying session, because like, no other rider could have done that. And then in the race mark's got a chance and i think one of the biggest things is we always saw mark ride like this in the early stages of races he if you think back to 2013 and his first few years in the class he had so many near misses with other riders and i remember bradley smith said it at the time he said that's how mark's always written but he doesn't he doesn't hit you so you can't really give out Now he is making contact with other riders because MotoGP is so close. Everyone's within a few tenths of a second. It's not like it was back in 13 where Ducati were nowhere and you had, you know, a couple of factory Yamahas up against Marquez and, you know, it might be Pedroza at one stage. It might be someone else then for the next round. But you only had a handful of riders at the front capable of really competing. Now you've got, you know, a dozen riders, especially at around like Portimao where we've had the pre-season test we've had the sprint race we've had the practice sessions you've had so much time to get yourself geared up that it was always going to be really tight at the front and i think that was probably one of the big factors that contributed to to the incident as well i would say to david just to go back to what you were saying about when mark was in moto two it's different when you're coming up through the junior classes obviously in the premier class you have to set your example for all the other riders but you also know what you've got and at the end of the day like people will say what they want about, The penalty that Mark was issued with, double long that penalty for Argentina that he's not going to serve. You know, should it have been more? Do you want it to be more? You know, do you want to have Mark starting from pit lane and out of the race before it starts? Not really. You want to see him at the front. So there's swings and roundabouts on it, especially whenever it's in the Premier class that are different to whenever riders are coming up through the ranks in Moto 3 and Moto 2. And that's probably wrong. It's just the the way that the world is. And you have to give a rider that's got eight world championships that's probably the best we've ever seen. You know, he, he gets a little bit of leeway as well at times.
2: Uh, I was going to say, the, sa- the the safest penalty for Mark is uh, probably to allow him to start about 100 metres ahead of everyone else because at least that way, you know, he's going to hit, he's not going to hit anyone.
0: <laughs> well, listen, I have a question, quick uh, one for Dave and for Neil, um, you know, because we were there at the press conference and we saw... You know Mark's reaction on Sunday. What happens next? I mean, he has a broken metacarpal bone in his right hand. Um, it's another injury. When he comes back, do we see what kind of markets do we see? Will there be any kind of change? Is he going to be more accepting of Honda's predicament? And and I don't know because we've we've said before, I think even on this show that there is an element of Mark and HRC that is is working more towards 2024 next year. The next championship, Honda are going to be making some radical experiments with their chassis in the coming races. I think it's very much a a project that's in transition, you could say. Uh, They've got a brand new rider, of course, next to Marquez. And this kind of escalation of, of controversy, is, I think, is going to have some sort of impact. It has to have.
3: Uh, Possibly, but then uh, he will be making his comeback at the Circuit of the Americas, a track that he has called his own for, I don't know how long. I mean, we have to go back quite some time now um, since Mark's uh, last victory. Um, You're looking at uh, Mizano at the end of 2021. Um, You know, Had it not been for this injury, you would say that um, he would still probably be going to Kota with a... You know, a decent chance of, of maybe even fighting for the victory in one of the the two encounters that we're going to have there. Um, so yeah, I can't see any I can't see any strange any change of strategy from him um, when he comes back because it's just that's part of his DNA. That's how he is.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's the nature of the beast. Um, he is just not going. He, he's not going to change. Uh, or well. Uh, I'd like to revise that. He will change a little bit. He will be a little bit more careful. He'll be a little bit more um, uh, sort of uh, thoughtful. But then, uh, a little bit more thoughtful for Mark Marquez is still um, absolutely on the ragged limit for any other sort of mortal racer. So mm-hmm. it, 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 the limit is still a lot further for him, I think. And yeah, he's going to have to be. A, he's going to have to be patient with Honda. But um, you know, if he thinks he has a chance, he has to try.
1: I always think as well, Dave, just what you're mentioning there about the limit. It's always very easy to forget that the limit is the limit and you go that little bit above it and there's no coming back. And that's what we've seen time and again from Mark. We're also on the limit right now because we need to get the money in from our sponsors. So we're going to take a quick ad break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the sprint races and the impact that they've had over the course of this weekend and what we can expect from them going through the season.
0: Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at renthal.com to find the perfect bend.
1: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and KTM. So we've looked at the Marc Marquez instance. Now we talk about the the other big talking point really from the opening rides of the year in Portugal, the introduction of the sprint races, 12 laps in Portimao and just the impact that they had on MotoGP. I think impact's a pretty safe word to use given some of the action that we had during the course of that uh, sprint race. But... um just when you look at the introduction of these races, it was a massive philosophical change for MotoGP. And the impact of that in terms of changing the entire format of the weekend is going to be something we're going to see affect the rest of this season and indeed the next few years, really, for MotoGP. So there's a lot to to go through, really, whenever we talk about the sprint races. But just when you when you think about it, Adam, what's the first thing that comes to your mind?
0: Ah, oh, it's... It's hard to really pick an overriding emotion, Steve, after the weekend. I, th- I mean, I probably said on the last show that I did an interview with um, Dorna sporting director, I think that's his title, um, Carlos Espaleta, a week before the Grand Prix for a story. And uh, I asked him what he was most worried about when it came to the new sprints format. And he said getting riders safely through the sprint into the Sunday GP race, which Dorna have right from the beginning of this concept maintained is the most important point of the weekend i mean it is it's the it's the record book event and you know we've come to the first event and there are you know multiple injuries four riders i mean we're going to be looking at an 18 rider grid for round 2 which was always going to be a hard sell anyway because it's in the other side of the world only a few days you know after the opening round um of course not all those injuries can be attributed to sprint But, uh, you know, and I think there's a real large factor of first race nerves, first race emotions, the excitement, everything else we traditionally see with the the freaky occurrences that happen at the season opener. I mean, that's got something to do with it. I don't think you can lay the injuries and, and all the stress and everything just at the door of the fact that MoGP now has sprints. It's it's a change, and you know I think as much as Alessio Spargaro or, or riders like him were feeling emotional and getting emotional about it, there were others that were saying, "Listen, we have to get used to this. This is something new for us. It's, it's new for everybody, and uh, inevitably there's going to be a few bumps in terms of organisation and the way it's all handled." So uh, I still saw something that I thought was great. I mean, all three of us that were there and you at home, Steve, were watching on Saturday and thought it was mega. A 12-lap dash. It was bad luck that Bastinini was on the outside and get, got caught in the crash. Um, but let's be honest, every time we've watched a Grand Prix race, there were 20 rounds last year. There was always some contact. There was always some moment. There was some scare or some crash. at One, every one of those Grand Prix. Now it's happening, whether it's going to be on a Saturday or a Sunday. I don't think you can look at the sprints and say, you know, it's going to decimate MotoGP, it's, it's too early for that.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I I thought one of the biggest things with the sprint race was just what you were saying. You you were looking at it at home and people were excited about it. Like I was watching it with, uh, I was back in in the house with my, my mom and dad and, and a few others were in the house and none of them really have any interest in in racing or, or bikes. Dad does, but no one else does. And all of them were transfixed by this because it was 20 minutes long and it was just, it was a heavyweight duel. Everyone was just beating each other up and you were swinging as much as you could try and land some punches. And it it was fantastic entertainment. And I'll be honest, there was a part of me, like I was going through Twitter after the race and there was part of me thinking, am I some sort of bloodthirsty ogre that wants to see this? Because the reaction seemed to be that this was the worst thing that's ever happened. And it wasn't, it was great. You know, MotoGP needs to showcase how exciting the sport is and the sprint race gives that the same way that the super superpole gives it in world superbikes and i think that that's one of the things that for me was was really important because we were able to to see moto gp in a really raw form where riders had to learn how to strategize on the fly and that's always exciting because they're the best in the world we obviously saw you know a lot of injuries over the course of this weekend but you know how many of them were attributed to the sprint race not really for me not really that many obviously bastianini but you know we saw marquez clear out two riders in defeat in the grand prix as well so every time you race something can happen and it's up to the riders to understand how to maximize their weekends and that's where in superbikes one of the keys to jonathan rays success for 6 years was he never looked at his results from each ra- each race he looked at it from the two races in a weekend or the three races when the Super Bowl race was introduced. And they looked at it and they said, oh, we outscored our rivals by six points this weekend or we underperformed this weekend. And we gave up a couple of points and they changed their focus to being what was our performance like in Portimao? What was our performance like in Assen?" rather than just looking at the individual race results? And that's what MotoGP GP teams and riders are going to have to do. And it is going to be a case of surviving. But guess what, Ad? You're an MXGP reporter. You know what it's like to have to survive over the course of an MXGP season. That's what MotoGP is going to become because it is just a case of keeping yourself out of trouble and score as many points as you can and come away with a championship at the end of it.
2: Yeah, I think it was, I mean, yeah, you can't just put it all on the sprints. I think we have to realize is like the 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 a sprint race changes the entire format. It's not just that they've added a race on Saturday, it's that they've changed the entire format, so we've lost f p four. We only have Friday for sorting out entry into q q one and q two. you've got um um you we've got q one and q two early in the morning and because there's two races started or or started on the with or using the grid set in the same qualifying session, it puts a lot more pressure on um, uh, on qualifying. You know, like grid position becomes even more important. Grid position is already really important just because of the, the nature of the bikes. You know, uh, the, the aerodynamics and the, uh, the ride-high devices have made overtaking that much more uh, difficult. It, it, it absolutely was the first race of the season. That, you know, you do see people... Just being completely irrational in the uh, on the uh, first race of the season, uh, getting very very excited. And There was definitely some of that. I don't think Portimao helped, but I do think, for example, um, uh, the, the the crashes that we saw on Friday with Paulo Spagro and again Miguel Oliveira, uh, that kind of crash is the kind of crash that, that that is going to be as a result of the pressure, the additional pressure which sprint races impose. I think Portamouse may be a bad, uh, because it was the first, uh, because it was the first race. I think it's a, you can't judge the format on one race. Um, but I, I, I think it's sort of just indisputable that it's putting a lot more pressure on the riders, especially with 21 races. I think having a sprint format plus 21 races. Is a lot. That's a lot of starts. Um, that's a lot of danger. It would have been better to do, you know, like sprint races at half of them. Make sprint races something a little bit special. Make, you know, like a change up the weekend as well. That would have been uh, that would have been interesting. Also, would have been interesting then to um, to sort of play with the format, see what difference it made for different uh, for different rounds and all that sort of thing. And I have to say, like the the the, the prize giving ceremony ceremony for me, that was one of the best things about it. I I, I really liked. The podium where they've got the podium in the middle of the front straight. The only thing, the only criticism I think anyone had of that was basically it would have been nice if it had been faced more towards the crowd. Um, but that that looks really, really class. I thought that was uh, I thought that was really good.
3: Yeah, I thought, um, I mean, I'm pretty conflicted, I must say, because, um, I think like, like you all, I, I thought it was a, a really exciting, a fun race to watch. Um, it was a, a fight that went to the last lap was decided on the last lap. At times we had five guys fighting for the victory. Um, and there were a couple of surprises in there. It wasn't just, um, you know, what we had seen in preseason. Um, basically translating into a kind of race result. We had a couple of surprises like Jack Miller. No one really expected him to be there vying with the, the top guys. The same could be said of Marquez. Um, and you know, for 20 minutes, it was, it was just breathless stuff. You know, you couldn't really, um, get a word in. There was just so much going on, um, to keep up with. Um, and yeah, it's, I have to say that, you know, during a race weekend in previous years, there were times where you got to a Saturday and you just thought, can we, can we start racing already? Like it's just, it's just, you know, <laughs> extra practice. And, and it all feels a bit like, okay, we've, we've seen a couple of practice sessions now and we kind of have a rough idea of who's going to be where, uh, but we still got a full day of this to go. Um, so I was quite buoyed by, you know, qualifying happening on Saturday morning, then in the, into the race on Saturday, it was obviously <clears throat> there was a novelty factor there, but I also thought, well, this is more action to get our teeth into. But I am. I have to kind of agree with Dave there that I, I do have my concerns as to whether this is sustainable over, over uh, a full race season. Um, you know the fact that we have twenty one races, the fact that we have uh, twenty more sprints to go. Um, We're one weekend in. We've lost four riders to injury. Um, another one is also injured as well. Jorge Martin broke a toe in that crash on Sunday um, and damaged his ankle when Marquez hit him. You know, this is uh, this is kind of scary. Um, Adam and I were on the same flight home today earlier, and we were talking with uh, our French colleague, Michel Turco, at the airport. And we were saying, like, that was scary at Portimao. Can you imagine what a sprint race would be like at Magello, or at Phillip Island, when everyone's got the soft tires fitted, everyone's got low fuel, and you've basically got a freight train of 15 riders, uh, you know, basically Bumping into each other along the main street. I mean, it's going to be pretty scary, pretty terrifying. Um, and um, I do think that riders are obviously going to take a bit of time to understand um, the right approach and how to pace themselves through a sprint. Um, you know, they've obviously got a good idea of how to do that on Sunday because they're all experienced guys. Um, but um, yeah, I have to say, it's it's a little concerning thinking of. 20 more of these if the first weekend claimed four guys then uh, you know where are we going to be by the time we get to Jerez or Mugello
2: yeah, I, I think, I mean, Steve made a really good point about the way that uh, Jonathan Ray learned to look at a, a weekend instead of a race. And I think the, the, he's spot on when he says uh, that this is what the MotoGP rider is going to do. You know, that you're going to look at your points tally and not at, you know, the position you finished in uh, in both races. Yeah. Um, there was some talk also on saturday from some of the riders about uh, you know what to do if you are like seventh or eighth or something uh, is it really going to be worth taking all that risk the only real risk is at the front is where the where, where the points where the points difference is i think there's a, a bigger points difference between sort of first and second and second and third but then after that it's just one point um and maybe you're better uh, keeping your powder dry trying to stay on trying to finish safely uh, and learn what you can to use in the feature race on Sunday where there are more, many more points uh, uh, available rather than going all in uh, uh, just for the sake of an extra point uh, in the sprint race.
0: I think, Dave, I mean, you made a great point about perhaps it should have been a soft launch for the, the sprint format because, as we know, uh, the, the scheme was introduced slightly undiplomatically uh it was you know the teams and riders apparently were not very well they weren't consulted or they were not um kind of uh lobbied about it you know how they felt it was pretty much announced and that was it i mean you could imagine uh if Dorna had picked you know maybe key events to have the sprints uh some of the busier races like assen or, or, or You know, or, 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 ma- or maybe some
2: you exactly know, some of the races know. where there weren't people you know like sure. you know, people people are well, going to turn up to, to lamar and and the saxon ring and uh, and asin anyway so maybe look at the work the the events which are struggling uh and uh, and try try it there you know try it in magella but maybe even try it at, at silverstone a nice wide track where you can do it yeah and also some of the
0: new events you know kazakhstan and india that could have been you know it's two kind of selling points i'm, I'm not too sure why Dorna decided to launch full in i mean i think formula one have 24 grand prix this year and they're only having sprints at six uh, ama supercross have 17 rounds they do triple crown changes to the format at three i think so there there is kind of like moderation when it comes to that uh, maybe it was just like a, a wholesale change it was like the a heavy way to you know to To introduce the whole thing um and i think if it goes swimmingly then there's no grumbles but if people start to have issues and you know there is some sort of controversy riders are injured or whatever then it's very easy to think well you know it's all because of the change it's all because of the culture shift and 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 that's it so you know you can sit on the fence and see the positives and the negatives of it Uh, but i think the overriding point is it's still too soon you know, hopefully we won't get to round six and you're suddenly having teams and brands looking for substitute riders to to fill in for others. MotoGP, um, I think, you know, is at the level now where, you know, can you call on somebody like Jonas Folger? I, I mean, can you persuade the likes of Danny Pedrosa to step in? Uh, can, can you ask Kyle Crutchlow to race another half a season because there are not many other riders that can suddenly transition into that level at that speed and, you know, be accustomized with all the equipment and the demands of it. So it's um, it's, it's pretty tricky.
3: Yeah, I agree with you, ad um, I think we do need to give it, um, you know, another couple of weekends before we, we make, um, you know, a definitive judgment. Um, but uh, just to go back to... Dave's point there and what he was saying, um, you know, about riders perhaps having to accept um, the sprint as a kind of track time session if if they realize that they're not going to get a decent result. Basically, what the sprint does, what the length of the race does puts massive, massive onus, not just on qualifying, but on the first couple of laps. So I think no matter the situation, the first couple of laps, no matter the championship situation, the first couple of laps are always going to be really, really hairy just because if you don't end lap three or lap four in the top six or the top seven then you know forget about winning the race forget about scoring big points in this in this race um so i think that is something that no matter what the riders say or however they approach it you know you, you you're basically gonna have to be risking it all in those first two laps to to try and get any kind of position and there will always be someone that will be prepared to risk it
1: yeah, I have to say that one of the the one things that I really wanted to jump in on at one point there was, Dave, you mentioned FP4 not being there. You're wearing black today. That's obviously <laughs> just because you're feeling that loss. But um, I I do think that when you look at the, the sprint races as a whole, I've said before that I'd love it if we got rid of having Q1 and Q2 in MotoGP because that's what puts the big onus on having to be on the limit in Friday's practice sessions to make sure that you're able to get your top 10 points. And and the jeopardy of Friday is great from an entertaining perspective because it gives you something to keep an eye on all the way through the practice sessions. But I'd probably like to see us get rid of that and then go to the the longer qualifying um, session, like what we have in Superbikes now. Instead of having Q1, Q2, we've just got, I think it's a half an hour session or something like that for Superbikes. And then you just pick your grid from that, and then you go into the Super Pole races, or, well, race one and then the Super races. I'd like to see a change like that. None of you have convinced me that um, I'm not a bloodthirsty ogre, so that's disappointing (laughs) on my side. But um, let's move it on a little bit to Steve, our big winners and losers. From one thing you,
0: you mentioned the word change, and I think that's that's really important because Dorna have always prided themselves on the safety commission and having a relationship and a policy with the riders where they will listen to them and they will take on board any kind of constructive alterations that need to be made to either circuits or whatever else. I think there will be petitions now for perhaps change. Um, from what I've heard, you know the the post qualifying interviews, the part Fermé structure may disappear. To to give the riders more time to prepare for you know the the build-up to to the sprint race uh so I want to see you know what Adorna do from here I mean I don't believe they will jack in the scheme but you know they you know how much are they really going to listen and how much are they going to put it down to emotional reactions or worries or concern just over the like I said the culture shift in MotoGP so let's see what happens
2: yeah, I, I mean that's always whenever you change anything, people complain because they're used to doing something in a particular in a particular way. You see this with, whenever commentators change, everyone is always complaining about all oh, the commentators have changed. Whoa, 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 whoa. These new let's, ones, not, <laughs>
1: let's not talk about things like <laughs> that, Dave. <laughs> no, no, when, no Whenever
2: no, they Cole, change, stay the same. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like apart from Superbike, who's got absolutely fantastic commentators. It's the same with Moto Two and Moto Three, obviously. Um, wh- whenever it changes, people say, "Oh, this is terrible. This is absolutely horrendous. Why? Why? Why uh, did they get rid of the old lot?" And then. And then uh, you know, a few years later, they think, you know, the, the current lot are the, uh, are the best things since sliced bread just because it takes a little time to get used to change. So there's also an element of that um, in people being used to doing things in, in a particular way and having to relearn and, and figure out new ways of doing. Um, so we'll we'll have to wait and see how that goes. And we, we really will have to see how Dorna responds or how MotoGP responds. Uh, the FIM, the you know the, 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 the safety part of it responds to and deals with um, this all of the consequences, you know the the, the unexpected way that uh, behavior, that racing that that everything changes.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting you mention that as well, because one of the things that I remember when we brought in the Super Bowl race, I had a chat to a few riders about how you had to change, how you hydrated for the day, your nutrition, all those kind of factors. So that's where the the qualifying press conference is probably not really that important because the news of the day will then quickly shift to be the sprint race. But um, let's uh, sprint ahead to the end of today's show. Winners and losers from the opening race of the year. Neil, I'll come to you straight off the bat. Who was your big winner from Portimao?
3: Uh, Jack Miller was my big winner, Steve, um, because it was a pretty remarkable turnaround from pre-season testing. Uh, Jack finished, I think, 17th at the Mau test. He was nine tenths of a second off Pecobania. Um I remember one of uh, our Dorna colleagues, uh, Emilio Vasquez, asked Jack after the final dev test in the Mau. What's going on with you in the KTM? And Jack was like, you know what? It's actually not too bad because I'm just nine tenths of a second off a guy that broke the lap record today. It's not as bad as it looks, but I didn't have the impression that um, Jack was going to be really anywhere towards the front in the first six, eight, maybe even 10 races this year. Yet um, I was stunned that he ended the first day uh, of practice on top. Um, I was stunned that he was up fighting with the leaders uh, in the sprint race on Saturday. And I think his performance on Sunday was uh, remarkable too. And, um, you know, it's testament to to KTM and, and their plan. Like it, maybe it didn't make sense completely at the time. And we were left wondering what exactly was going on during testing. But um they 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 pulled it out when it, when it mattered. And I know there was a false dawn last year um, after the first round of the season with KTM. Um, but the fact that Binder and uh, Miller were contesting fourth place together on track on Sunday indicated that they've genuinely made a bit of a step and they've found something. So um, yeah, I thought Binder rode magnificently. Um, and I think it's uh, it, it bodes remarkably well for this year.
1: Yeah, I have to say, thank God for both KTM riders. They did a good Sunday because with Pedro Acosta having been so impressive in the Moto2 class... Everyone in the KTM gas gas lineup knows that they're under a lot of pressure going into this season. So it was good to see Jack have that result in the super, in the sprint race. And then obviously KTM strong in the, in the Grand Prix. Adam, you actually had the chance to catch up to Red Bull KTM technical, uh, technical manager, Sebastian Riese as well after, after the weekend.
0: Yeah, that's right, Steve. Um, One thing we'd like to try and do on the Paddock Pass podcast note shows is, you know, give a bit of value after the race. Uh, We want to grab, you know, whether it's a technician or a rider or whoever, just to give us some lines or some reaction on, um, you know, how the Grand Prix went. And in the case of KTM, as Neil said, it was it was quite a turnaround, you know. So it was a, you know I wanted to ask Sebastian whether there was kind of any panic really after the the timesheet showed both riders struggling. I think Binder was fifteenth and Miller eighteenth um, after the second day in Portimao, and um, you know there was there was much more form you know from them both in in round one. So yeah, I caught up with Sebastian, and and this is what he had to say to us. Seb, um, thanks for talking to us. Uh, when we saw. The results, the lap times, I mean, they weren't far away at the Portimao test. You guys have come back two weeks later for the first Grand Prix of the year. Uh, You know, and it it looked initially like KTM may be struggling, but it wasn't quite the reality because it was a solid weekend in the end.
4: Yeah, this is true. I mean, it's always too easy to speak about it afterwards. (laughs) But it gave us quite a headache, of course, um, to have this winter test period, to be honest many years. We had uh, not so great winter tests um, and there was not even a clear correlation to the performance we had in the season. So, we tried to tell us this and keep working and the result will come. And uh, yeah, it looks like it came. I mean, um, I think a a big pulling horse was for sure um, Jack now in this situation. Uh, He took the whole winter to adapt to our bike and to teach us to learn together with us uh, what was missing he believed a lot that it was first of all about setup and getting comfortable before putting anything upside down on the hardware side so he took a lot of time of that Um, there was not really a result a position coming but he already believed and he made us believe um and now he really showed that it's possible. And uh, yeah, the level we could see this weekend is is for sure promising for the future. It is probably not the track that, at least in the past, suited us best. Uh, the package, the bike, has changed quite a bit, as we know from the previous seasons. The, we will have drawbacks from that. It will fit a bit less on tracks that fitted us better before. Uh, it is not complete and round and finished it's a starting point uh, which was already performing that well in the race so we think we can do better Uh, we have a good idea what to work on now for the next steps and we will see how far that takes
0: us Seb, you were less than a second away from the top times at the test and then there was, what, 10, 11 days before you guys were back here for this Grand Prix. What was the, the feeling then around the team and the company? Was it a, a slight feeling of panic perhaps or was was you, were you guys just following a plan?
4: No, absolutely no panic. Um, this, this I can say, but a strong commitment that we still have to do something. And uh, to be honest, we did already quite a bit of the typical race weekend preparation during the test. So it gave us a little more room this weekend than usually to also try things. Uh, And we used this one week off and the one week preparation to um, have some other test items here also. And I think they also had quite a part in, in the step that we saw now this weekend. Jack took the headlines on Friday, of
0: course, and had a fantastic sprint, the first sprint for, for KTM and, of course, the championship. Uh, but Brad, I think, you know, made significant progress uh, today in the Grand Prix race. Um, he mentioned that the setup was moving more in a direction that he wanted. Can you just describe a little bit about what you managed to do for him?
4: Yes, sure. I mean, first of all, he, he wasn't 100% this weekend. And him and us only realized this during the weekend, what the situation really was. And uh, then to see finally what he could do today was really, really a strong performance from him and uh, I would say inspiration for everybody. Uh, We know what he's going through. Um, But it is true that it was not just this, it was also something on the bike. To be honest, on Friday we uh, still wanted to get some development done. We realized with him it's not so easy now as he's not fit. Uh, but we got the job distributed all over um, the team and um, it means we didn't have a stable basis until Saturday, really, so that then uh, Saturday, yeah, in the new format, you have these two runs, one run to compare something, which is your whole Saturday, the rest is push, push, push. Um, and then we had an uh, idea what to do for the Sunday, based on what we had learned on the Saturday and uh, looks like this worked quite well.
0: Seb, how was the experience of you know the Saturday sprint, you know, the change timetable? We've we spoken to the riders, we know how they feel about it and how demanding it was, but for you guys, um, how, how was that culture shift?
4: Yeah, it's a learning curve. I mean, sure, we, we had some sleepless nights over it before. Uh, we expected a lot of workload uh, for the Friday. We also expected a lot of workload for the Saturday for the engineers, for the mechanics. To be honest, it turned out um, to be that much on the Friday as we expected. It is very compressed. Um, Okay, it starts later, but that doesn't help you anything uh, because it starts when it starts. And from then on, you need to get the bike ready to race until uh, Saturday morning. That means uh, Friday night, all the decisions, all the plans have to be done and nobody goes before that's done. So it's a very long day. But to be honest, then uh, from a, let's say engineering um, crew point of view, the Saturday is not so bad. <laughs> okay. uh, the bike has to be uh, technically um, all prepared for race distance already Friday night. Um, so you have not so many runs where you investigate setup directions, test items, whatever. Um, It gives you quite a bit of room for the tires because you get some information for free. Usually you have to explore all the tire specs until the last detail before the race. Now uh, with the two tire specs that you have on the rear and the fact that there's a short race before, effectively in most cases it means you use a soft rear tire and you get experience over long distance in one go for free without compromising any... um, Let's say uh, setup work. Yeah. Because everybody does a long distance. So uh, it has also some, let's say, benefits, uh, security to make sure you're doing the right thing. And this, on the other hand, I think took also some pressure off. Of course, it's a special situation when you had this test before. We knew anyway, now in this case. But assuming you come with this format to something else and having the experience from this weekend, I would say. The Saturday is something that uh, if things go well, you can also enjoy a little bit more than before. And uh, yeah, of course, then if this also works well, you can take this momentum over. Of course, if things don't go to plan, you're in big trouble. uh, It's very hard to come back from this after a bad Friday.
0: Lastly, said, you mentioned gaining experience, for sure you've got a lot of data um, just from Portimao. So, how, how do you feel about the package and the, where it is at the moment and for the next Grand Prix in Argentina, which is only a few days away?
4: Yeah, I mean, we, we changed the character of the bike in quite a, lo- quite a lot of aspects. Um, we have the bike quite in our hands, on the rider's hands from the electronic side um we have a bike that seems to turn quite good and seems to use the grip that we can give him but we need to give it grip and we need to find that either by the tire or uh, by the setup etc by the riding um, and uh, we still have to understand how to use these tools that we have now in the best possible way I think we have already a good idea how to approach it in Argentina but in the end the reality will, will prove us wrong or right uh, sure we have some intense day in front of us but I'm confident we can show something nice Seb thanks ever so much for your time and best of luck in uh, Thomas. you're welcome yes thank you
0: uh, we mentioned at the top of the show about the super duke 1290 double r um i rode it the only time i've ever ridden a bike on a racetrack was at portimao for the launch of that motorcycle and to anybody listening i would you know thoroughly recommend it because uh i think it was one of the most thrilling things i've ever done because usually you're riding a motorcycle and you're being defensive you know you're on the road or you're on a trail you're looking out for you know, cars, holes, ruts, whatever. Whereas, um, you know, being on a racetrack allows you to actually, you know, go a bit mad with these uh th- you know, these uh these contraptions. And it's um it was utterly thrilling, really educational. Um and, you know, yeah, I didn't manage to sort of get the bike lint over as far as um, the MotoGP guys round turns one and two, but it felt like it. Um, unfortunately, that's one of the most disappointing things about trying to ride a motorcycle fast. You feel like you're, you know, Valentino Rossi or whatever, but then you see a photo and you realize you look like you're, you know, an old lady on a scooter going to do her shopping. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was that was a fantastic experience at Portimao. So anybody listening who's ever wondered about doing a track day, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. It's It's fantastic fun. And you actually learn a lot about the limits of a motorcycle how much you can break how much you can actually lean these things over and it's the perfect environment for that but uh yeah but as we've heard from Sebastian um KTM you know made progress and like Neil said as well when Brad Binder made the podium in Qatar last year and you know Miguel Oliveira obviously took victory in very unusual circumstances in Indonesia you just uh, wonder if this uh will be a repeat of the same pattern for the orange guys where they have a bike that works extremely well or much better on one track, but then they get to another and face um, the same difficulties with with grip. So let's see.
1: Well, that was where it was interesting that Miller spoke all the way through the weekend about how strong the front end of the bike was. And then the engine with the big bang configuration working well, the electronics changes they made seem to step things up from the test. So we'll see how termos goes. Obviously you can't read too much into the first round, probably not even until we get a sample size that's big enough after four or five rounds, but it was an encouraging start for them. Just to go back to what you were saying as well, lad, I did want to ask you about turn one, two, three, whenever we were chatting about it earlier on, because I knew you wanted to 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 mention that. I remember the first time I rode a bike in a track, it was 12 hours after I learned how to ride a bike, <laughs> and I went to Donington Park, and having gone from a Tesco car park to the crater curves. I can attest that it was one of the most terrifying things that I've ever done in my life. But uh, by the end of the day, it was great fun and you do learn a lot from it. And definitely it's something that, uh, that we recommended. So Dave, we're looking forward to getting you out on track. We're going to obviously, uh, organize that some MotoGP team. There's that many riders that are injured. We'll probably get you onto the, <laughs> onto the bike by the time we get. We might do Hereth. I think that, uh, Coda might be a little bit too physical for you. But uh, I think by hereth you've got enough time to get yourself ready for that. But who was your big winner from the weekend?
2: I mean, my big winner for the weekend was um, the, the the dude who did all the winning, uh, Pekka Banyaya. Not only does he come away from the chat from the the opening weekend with thirty seven points, you know, a, a full score, but all of his potential rivals are, uh, you know, pretty much ruled out. Everyone we thought might be a a championship contender had fairly miserable weekends. Um, Fabio Quartararo qualified badly and really paid the price. Um, had a couple of extremely mediocre finish uh, finishes and only scored a handful of points. Alicia Spargo didn't really have the race that, um, or, or the races, uh, which we hope for. Jorge Martin got, um, uh, basically knocked out of the, uh, uh, out of the full race, uh, even though he got on the podium in the, in the Super Bowl race. Um, um, yeah. Mark Marquez again, you know ruled out, no, he's not really looking like he's going to be a, a contender. Um, yeah, Peco Banyai had everything go his own way. But then again, there's the danger that um, something similar overcomes peco if uh, at a at an upcoming weekend you know the there's also there's not only sort of you know double the chances to score points but there's also uh, double the jeopardy there's the there's double the risk you're you're starting twice and if you get a bad start and get caught up behind someone who is uh, not uh, riding with their brain then you can also end in the gravel so um, yeah, but I think this was all an almost perfect start for um, uh, for Peko Bagnaya.
1: Yeah, life is fraught with risks. And obviously, Adam, as the third person we go to for the winners, you have to make sure that you didn't pick Miller or Peko Bagnaya. So, who's your big winner?
0: Uh, I'm going to have to go for Maverick Binales, Steve. Uh, you know, I thought the way that he was able to be competitive to run with Bagnaya was, like I mentioned before, very impressive. I mean, it's not the first time we've seen Maverick start a season strongly. Um, You know, I kind of looked it up and out of his eight eight MotoGP seasons, he's taken podiums or wins in, in, you know, four of them now. Uh, I think in 2017, he had a particularly strong run. There was like three or four podiums in the first five or six, half a dozen events. Um, you know, we thought he was going to push for a, a real sort of title threat that year and it didn't happen. So I'm not getting too excited about Mario Um If you remember, I did tip him last year to be our surprise of the season. And, you know, I almost got kind of close to that, I think. But um, this year, who knows? Uh, you know, we, we do know about the, ta- the talent of Vinales. And um, this was the first little taste. If the, the prettier is more competitive and he's more happier on it, then, um, you know, we could be seeing more podium finishes. So he was my winner.
1: Yeah, I have to say that right from F, uh, FP1, P1, Dave, right from the opening practice session of the weekend, I did think Vinales looked really good. And when we know Maverick is happy, we know how fast he can be. And at the end of the day, he's got that proven track record of being capable of winning races. And certainly for, for him, he'll think that he can be that leading a prettier rider as well this year. And that's going to be massive. Obviously, we would have seen potentially him up against. We get a lot of error at the end of the the GP race, the end of the, the Sunday race, that would have been something really interesting to see how that would have played out.
3: Yep, it would. And I think it's worth pointing out that uh, Maverick is pretty sure he would have been fighting for victory in the sprint had he not been pushed wide by Alex Marquez at turn five, the lap that um, uh, Bastianini was skilled by uh, Luca Marini. Uh, I think he lost five or six positions in that uh, instance and he was still managed still managed to uh, recover the ground and get back towards the, the lead group um, within a couple of laps. So, yeah, I mean, a great weekend from Maverick for sure and you know with a bit better luck he could have come out with an even better weekend
1: Adam we came to you last for the winners but we'll come to you first for your big loser from the weekend who's that going to be?
0: uh three contenders very quickly steve me for the um paddock past podcast 2023 fantasy league um you know after being some somewhat of a king at the discipline last year it was a miserable start and i blame luca marini entirely for filling me with false optimism um joan zarko was also in my team who you know had let's be honest had a fantastic last lap to gain two positions so good on the frenchy three was it three okay um and who else did i have um I had Veda, which didn't work out so. And Brad Bindo, you know, acquitted himself quite well. So, yes, uh, but it didn't fare too well. I think I'm out of the four of us right at the bottom. So that that you know has to be fixed before before qualifying in Argentina. And maybe I was a bit too hasty in picking my team. But it, you know, I plead to anybody else who wants to have some fun and bench race with us. Padapass Podcast 2023 is the name of the league, um, and you can find it just by clicking on the tab on motorgp.com otherwise other losers um anybody wearing an 88 t-shirt i think they uh turned up expecting for a good you know a good result and a good show um and their only real hope of home success you know got punted out by a honda and lastly um i would just a quick nomination for joel kelso um because that incident across the finish line in Moto three was uh, f- slightly unbelievable i I do have a certain amount of sympathy for the australian he was only 1.2 seconds behind daniel holgado who won the race um so there was not a great deal of time there to exactly be aware of the situation and throttle off because holgado had you know basically done that uh, within a a series of meters but i think you still need to be incredibly aware of what's going on around you as as the checker flag drops and kelso of course has a broken ankle so it's really paid for you know any kind of um any just sort of slight of concentration there. I think, uh, you know, you could see from the replays that he seemed to look adrift or maybe took a tear off. There's some kind of yeah. moment there where he just lost concentration. So it wasn't like he was being completely boneheaded, uh, far from it. But, um, you know, that would be a, a painful and valuable lesson for him.
1: Yeah, just very quickly about that as well. I, I thought for me, one of the big, big winners from the weekend was actually the model 3 class because we had a big turnover in <coughs> the front. I think when you look at it was Halgado, Munez, Marrero and Rueda up at the front. I think between them, they've probably got, I don't know, 70 Grand Prix starts. And that's great to see that we have those new riders up at the front of that class because one of the things coming into this this season, and we talked about it last week on the show, was that uh, we've got the established riders that are back in the class or staying in the class, your Fanatis, your Sasakis, uh, Masia, whoever you want to look at. And, it was good to see that youth and young riders are going to be at the front as well. And I thought I think especially when you look at some of the riders that are going to be there all the way through the year, the likes of Halgado, he established himself really well in junior GP for a few years. Same with Rueda, same with Morero, and now they're getting that chance at the front in the Grand Prix class as well. So I thought that was really good. You were obviously the big loser ad I actually wanted to leave that as a, a little bit of a a talking point at the end of the show, but you have beat me to it. So uh, check out our MotoGP Fantasy League because that, you've uh, you've managed to to wrangle us some prizes as well for
0: this year. It's in the works, Steve. Not quite yet. Not confirmed. And also, oh, okay, we'll, no, keep, we'll no, keep that under wraps then. No, an honourable uh, mention as well to Mike Falcone or Falcone. Um, you know our winner from last year. We need still need to get you some stuff, Mike, because uh, you kicked ass in our. our inaugural league last year and uh, you're due some prizes so we'll try and sort that out. Dave, obviously Adam talked about being the king
1: of fantasy last year but uh, in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is king and uh, what about for you after after this opening weekend of the season who was your big loser?
2: Um, uh, well, my big loser was uh, Juan Mir because for a number of reasons first of all through practice it looked like Uh, all four of the or certainly the the two uh, ex-Suzuki boys could keep up with Mark Marquez Um, you know their times their pace looks pretty similar Uh, and then Mark Marquez first of all he pulls out that lap in qualifying uh, and basically left left Juan Mir for dead and um, you know, we come away for the weekend. Everyone is talking about Mark Marquez. Nobody's got, uh, talking about Juan Mir. Mir also managed to get along that penalty for uh, uh, running into Fabio Cuartararo. Um I thought that penalty was a little bit harsh, um, but uh, the, the, the new rules, they're trying to clamp down a little bit on them. Um, but yeah, Mark, Mer, I, I think Juan Mir... Uh, Really got an introduction to what it's like to be Mark Marquez's teammate this uh, the, the, this weekend. You get your hopes up because you know he's you're close. You're on more or less the same times, and then Marquez pulls out something special.
1: Yeah, I have to say, Dave, I agree with you about the penalty because I thought it looked like Fabio's ran in wide. There's half a door open there. I thought the fact that Mir got a penalty and Marini didn't was. A big surprise to me. But Neil, what about you? What was Who was your big loser?
3: Uh, Fabio Quattararo, Steve, because he comes away from the first round of the season with a 10th in the sprint and an 8th in the, the feature race. Um, it was a decent recovery, I guess you could say, um, in, in the second race, in Sunday's race, because he had a, a nightmare start. Um, he said he chose the, the wrong line, I think, into turn one, turn three, I got shuffled all the way back. Um, you know, and he came good at the end. Um, but, uh, Uh, this was a track that he won so convincingly at last year, I think by over five seconds. Um, He was actually six seconds faster in Sunday's race than he was last year. But um, the race itself was 14 seconds faster than his winning time from a year ago, which shows how far, how quickly things have moved forward. And um, yeah, he was left to rue some familiar sounding feelings from Yamaha, basically saying that just the the inla- the inline four and the different lines that it has to run to be fast um, are not really compatible um, among a battling MotoGP group at the moment, um, and that's just uh, you know something that he he said he felt Yamaha had maybe um, had maybe fixed through the off season, you know, with the faster engine they've got now, but um, yeah, the 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 same feelings remain, and um, you know, Fabio coming away from the first round. Uh, yeah, already so far off. It, it doesn't bode well. He did come away from Ron Pond last year, um, after a pretty miserable encounter and, uh, managed to, you know, lead the championship quite convincingly by, by half season distance. But, um, yeah, with, with Pekka it's good form. You, you do worry that, um, Fabio's season might be over. His chances of fighting for the championship might be over really before the season properly gets going.
1: Yeah, and obviously enough the season is properly underway now we're straight into Argentina back-to-back races so keep an eye on Patreon for our Paddock Notes show our updates through the course of the weekend where we all get together to dissect what's happened during the course of the day but most importantly to bring you the news directly from the paddock when the riders finish their end-of-day debriefs that's when we record the show so we're able to bring you everything straight from the horse's mouth so check out patreon.com forward slash paddock past podcast and uh, become a paddock insider on patreon to be able to get those latest updates as it is we're going to be flat out on patreon for that as well because we'll have a preview for the argentinian weekend at the start of the week for our paddock notes show and uh, then we're into the into the full on race weekend so it's going to be very busy on patreon for that so check that out as it is a big thank you to adam wheeler david emmett Neil Morrison for bringing everyone bang up to date from Portimao. There was a lot to get through. And uh, I think we managed to cover most of the major talking points as ever in MotoGP, though we could probably do another hour and still only be touching on the surface of everything that happened over the course of the weekend. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Cheers, Steve. Dave. Thanks again. Thank you. Neil, you've obviously uh, just about managed to get yourself back home and then it's out to Argentina for you, but uh, it uh, it never stops.
3: Exactly. French uh, air traffic control striking uh, members uh, are permitting. Let's see how that goes, Steve. But, um, yeah, because I'm flying from BA to uh, – f- sorry, from – paris to be a tomorrow so let's see what happens in paris but yeah i've got my fingers crossed
1: yeah well we need you to be there neil like i said we need you for the paddock notes show so uh, get yourself <laughs> down to argentina by or by crook and uh, for everyone keep up to date with us and on the twitter at paddock pass pod drop us any questions that you have over the course of the weekend and a uh, big thank you to ktm and also to rent street for supporting the podcast this episode of the paddock pass
0: podcast was
2: produced by jensen Bieler, david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com well i'll be honest
1: i'm keeping one eye on the football as well so if you hear me shout out <laughs> it's because i already have equalized also for the next 20 minutes if anyone mentions Fabio or Zarco,
2: they're just dead to me. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs>